In coming together here this evening, I believe we have and are creating something that is rare and sacred in our world. There is so much confusion, there is so much turmoil, there is so much delusion and greed and anger in the world out there. And I believe that what we are doing here tonight, gathering in the way that we have done, powerfully contradicts so much of what is valued and prized in the world today. Considerable effort has gone into making this evening possible. You've all traveled some distance to be here. Schedules have been rearranged and plans that had to be made to take care of families. And a lot of organizational work has gone into making this evening possible. What I'd like to do this evening is speak about community. Explore the idea of community, both in the classical sense, out of the tradition from which the meditation comes, and also in a very immediate sense what community means for each of us living in the world today. I'd like to ask you to reflect for a moment, please, why it is that you've come here this evening. What is it about this gathering that has brought you here tonight? The Buddha said, believe nothing merely because you have been told it, or because it is traditional, or because you yourself have imagined it. Do not believe what your teacher tells you, merely out of respect for the teacher. But whatever way, by thorough examination, you find it to be one leading to good and happiness for all creatures. That path, follow like the moon, follows the path of the stars. And it's in that spirit that I ask you that question this evening, as a co-inquirer, looking into this question of community. There's great precedent for doing what we're doing here tonight. Over the centuries, women and men have gathered together in silence, supporting one another to go deeply into their hearts and minds and find what it is that is the purpose for living, what it means to live with integrity and dignity in the world. And certainly two and a half thousand years ago, prior to his enlightenment, the Buddha spent, and it is well documented, much time in different communities in India as he wandered around receiving teachers and teachings from the masters of the time. As a mendicant monk and an ascetic, he wandered the forests of India 
with a group of men with whom he practiced, it's clear that the idea of community was very important to him in the years culminating in his enlightenment. And the first teaching that he gave, where he set the wheel of the law in motion, the wheel of the truth as he experienced it, he gave to those people that accompanied him in the years in the forest. And over the 40 years subsequent to his enlightenment, they gathered around him a huge community of nuns and monks, supporting one another, and being together in silence and in active practice, searching and looking into their hearts together. In the early years of my own practice, I had the privilege of ordaining as a monk. And I lived, uh, it was at the Burmese monastery, and I lived in the, in the forest with many other nuns and monks. And each morning, very early, at about 3.30, we would come down from the woods where we were staying in tents to the meditation hall and be there for several hours. And at the beginning, it was really difficult. Uh, there was this great big Buddha that was in front of us and there were all these like Christmas lights around the Buddha that were like blinking on and off all the time. <laughs> so we'd be sitting there with our eyes closed and it would almost be like a sort of a psychedelic show going on. <laughs> and my best friend was, was um, uh, an American nun and she and I had this large irreverent streak and we used to talk about it being the sort of daily sound and light show. But there would be a lot of chanting and we would um, chant the qualities of the Buddha, the qualities of the heart that are opening and that are deepening. And after many months of this, this time of the day became so exquisite and so precious and so valued that when I disrobed it was the one thing that I missed most, was that morning of coming together in silence and sharing that commitment to knowing as best we could the deepest truths of our hearts and holding the collective hearts together, doing that, made such a difference. Ananda, the chief disciple of the Buddha, once asked him, he said, O Master or O Lord, he said, is it true that good spiritual friends are half of the great path? And he said, no, Ananda, that is wrong. He said, good spiritual friends are the whole holy life. And these are classical examples. And it seems to me that the challenge for us as people who are concerned about living wakefully in the world the challenge is to find that way in which these teachings and these experiences can come alive in our worlds today. There was a book that was written about the movement of the teachings from the East to the West. It was called, I believe, The Swans Coming to the Lake. How in this movement of the swans to our lake 
do we cultivate and create a community that is meaningful? There's a story I want to share with you that I really enjoyed, and it's somewhat relevant to what we're talking about. So this woman who goes to the travel agent, and she's an elderly woman, and she, she goes in and she says, you know, I want a ticket to Tibet. I want to go and see the guru. And uh, the person, the travel agent says to her, uh, Madam, I think that you may want to reconsider your decision and perhaps you know, go to Florida or a, or, or a Caribbean cruise. Going to Tibet is an arduous journey. And she said, no, she said, Tibet is where I'm going. Please arrange a ticket. And so she flew off to India and went up north. And when she came to the border at Tibet, she said, you know, I'm here to see the Guru. Please let me through. And they said to her, you know that it's a long journey and it's a difficult journey. And furthermore, after you've made the distance, you're only going to be allowed to share three words with the Guru. And she said, that's fine. She says, that's all I need to do. She said, let me through and let me be on my way. And so they led her through and she made this long journey to this monastery. I guess it was high up in the Himalayan mountains. And uh, a long line of people waiting to go in and she took her place and slowly moved forward and when she came near the front one of the monks came down and said to her are you aware of how to present yourself to the guru and are you aware that it's only three words that you're going to be allowed to share with him and she said fine I'm aware of all of this and when her turn came she walked through the curtains and she walked up to the guru and she prostrated three times as is customary and she said to him, Sheldon, come home. <laughs> Seems somehow related to what we're talking about here. <laughs> Certainly, and it seems for many of my friends too, that there is a process of redefining what the meaning of family is for us. For, for some of us, certainly our biological families no longer provide the full nurturing and support that we feel we need to live in this world today. And so the question of community and gathering is a very important one for many people sort of yearning for a family of the spirit how is it that we can live engaged lives and live deeply free in the busy worlds from which we come and I'll ask you again just to reflect for a moment on the question of why it is that you're here and why it is that this space is important for you Meditation is a very powerful path of purification. 
there are many different levels of purification that happen. And one of the levels, and one of the ways in which it's purifying, and perhaps in the process of meditation, it's one of the first ones that we come to experience, is a purification from the idea that we are separate from one another. How is it that we experience the separation? Well, certainly for many of us, when we begin being inward and looking into our hearts and minds, we very often find that we are deeply conflicted within. There are levels of self-hatred and non-acceptance and violence that are so painful And I believe that the depth to which we can open to this pain is the depth to which it's possible to be healed. Nasagadatta is a wonderful Indian master and he said, all you need is already inside of you. Only you must approach yourself with reverence and with love. Self-hatred and self-distrust are grievous errors. Your constant flight from pain and search for pleasure is a sign of love you bear for yourself. All I plead with you is this. Make love of yourself perfect. Deny yourself nothing. Give yourself infinity and eternity and discover that you do not need them. You are beyond. Purification from the separation within ourselves. Certainly, we soon begin to realize that we are separated and conflicted <coughs> so often with the people with whom we live our lives. Conflicts within the family, separations with the people in our community, the people that we work in. And we also feel so acutely, as we become more sensitive and more awake, the pain of the separation in the world today. Separation between people of color, black and white. Separation between nations. So much suffering. I was born and grew up in South Africa and for my early years I lived a deeply privileged white life. And I believed and had dreams for myself in my country that I was going to live long there and that I was going to be happy and that the abundance that surrounded me was going to serve me for as long as I lived. And the process of awakening to the fact that so much of what I valued and what was precious, so much of that was foundationed on enormous 
levels of oppression and greed and unfairness was one of, it wasn't one, it was the most difficult process of my life. And in, the, in this dismantling and crumbling of the world in which I grew up in, I eventually left and went into exile. And the upheaval and the turmoil and the confusion that is there now is such a powerful expression of the years of separation and division that happened there. It's a real dark night of the soul when we begin to grapple with all the ways in which we separated within and without. And I feel so strongly that community is one of the ways in which we can support one another for looking at these very, very difficult questions both inwardly and outwardly in the world today. So I ask that question again. Why is it that you're here tonight? I believe it's a very urgent question. The ritual at the very heart center of the Buddhist tradition is taking refuge. And these are very personal, and for each person, taking refuge has its own meaning. And the first refuge, taking refuge in the Buddha, for me, means taking refuge in the possibility that we can be free. That the Buddha was a human being like any other woman or man in the world today and that he came to know the deepest truth and that it is possible for each of us taking refuge in the Buddha and taking refuge in the Dharma for me means taking refuge in each moment's experience and endeavoring to live by the truth of that experience taking refuge in the Buddha, in the Dharma and taking refuge in the Sangha, the third refuge. The Sangha is the community. Certainly in the classical sense, taking refuge in the Sangha meant taking refuge in the community of nuns and monks who were engaged in the same spiritual practices. Perhaps we can open that refuge to include all people who are seekers of the truth. And perhaps we can open our arms even wider and include taking refuge in all of humankind. For it is true that everybody wants to love and everybody wants to be loved and everybody wants happiness. And it can be broadened further, of course, by including in our refuge in the Sangha all beings the creatures of the oceans and the waters, the creatures of the air and the creatures of the land.
And for some people, it can be even more taking refuge in all beings, both visible and invisible, in all of the realms, in all of the universes. When Nelson Mandela was freed from prison earlier this year, I was watching on television and it was a deep celebration. I cried a lot as he walked out of Pulsmore prison with his wife. It was something that I never believed would happen and it felt like a very personal celebration. It felt like a South African celebration. This event which so many of us had fought for had finally happened and of course it was very moving. And it's clear to me since his release that it wasn't a South African celebration. Certainly the events of the last week and as this man moves all over the world, millions and millions and millions of people have been deeply moved and are celebrating his liberation. And for me, taking refuge in community seems to be so much expressed in the way people are receiving this man, for his liberation in a very real way becomes the liberation of everybody. And the 27 years that he spent on Robben Island off the southern tip of Africa were 27 years in which all of us were Can our refuge in one another include every being who is in prison for their beliefs, who is in prison for their conscience? Every bird that is covered by the oil slicks around our shores, every rainforest that is disappearing. And meditation can be a way in which our refuge can broaden and widen and our sensitivity can be so deep to the well-being of all creatures. And as we open our hearts and minds and take community ever more, take refuge in community ever more broadly, the pain sometimes can be enormously overwhelming. The suffering is so great in the world today, the greed and the hatred and the delusion. The Sufis say, overcome any bitterness which may come because you are not up to the magnitude of the pain that was entrusted to you. Like the great mother of the world, who carries the pain of the world in her heart, each one is a part of her heart, and each of us endowed with a certain measure of cosmic pain. You are sharing in the totality of that pain, and are called upon to meet it in joy, instead of self-pity. For some of us, it, it takes a diagnosis 
For some of us it takes a diagnosis of a potentially life-threatening illness to yank us into the moment, into the real center of life. For others it's perhaps the death of a loved one or a catastrophe like the earthquake in Iran to really jolt us out of the complacency and darkness of, of living life with eyes closed. And the challenge for me seems to be to live our lives so immediately and so present with what is happening in our hearts and minds and what is happening outside that we take absolutely nothing for granted. It's a deeply radical way of life where in the fall when we see the leaf leaving the tree that we don't assume that we're going to be around to see it meeting the ground below. We are all terminally ill. The one truth is that we all are going to die. When one person has cancer, we all have cancer. When one person is diagnosed with AIDS, it's a diagnosis for all of us. And when one person is free, when one person awakens, we are all awakened. It's my deepest belief that we awaken when we do to take our place in a web out of which none of us can fall. Einstein said, this is the last reading I'm going to do tonight, he said, a human being is part of the whole called by us universe, a part limited in time and space. He or she experiences him or herself and his thoughts and feelings as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of his consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few people nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. May we together, in community, have freedom from fear and pain. And may we know interconnection with all beings who suffer in our world today. May we, in taking refuge in one another, know the deepest and the greatest joy. Thank you.
none of us like to hurt or to be in pain. None of us really welcome adversity in our lives. And really none of us want to deal with the difficult emotions that must arise in our lives from time to time. It all really sounds so gloomy, so (coughs) depressing, so difficult. And yet the question of suffering is the central question of so many of the great spiritual traditions of the world. After the Buddha's enlightenment experience, when he gave his first teaching, which is called setting the wheel of the law in motion, setting the Dharma in motion, the name of that talk is the Four Noble Truths. And the first of these noble truths is the truth of suffering in the world. Really, the fundamental of his teaching. And it seems clear that there must be an engagement with, an acceptance of, and an understanding of suffering in our lives, for there to be an unleashing of the powers of our great hearts. And the process of this engagement, this understanding and acceptance, far from being gloomy, depressing and negative, is really one of the most potentially joyful and liberating aspects of the human journey. Herman Hess says, you know quite well, deep within you, that there is only a single magic, a single power, a single salvation, and that is called loving. Well then, love your suffering. Do not resist it. Do not flee from it. Give yourself to it. It is only your aversion that hurts, nothing else. Tonight, I want to speak about suffering and about compassion. It is so true that the path of meditation, the practice of awareness, must involve an opening to all that is beautiful and wonderful within our hearts and minds and bodies and within the world around us too. Over the weeks that we've been meeting, we've looked at some of these aspects of our experience. We looked at the beauty of community. We looked at some of the the powers of the heart, the power of forgiveness, the power of loving-kindness as a practice both inwardly and outwardly in the world. And we also looked at the factor of mind, the factors of enlightenment, specifically at joy, the possibility for the deepest joy in our lives. 
And it is a part of the practice too, to open to all that is magnificent in the world around us. To one another and to the natural beauties on the planet. And this opening to all this beauty is important also because it provides us with that balance and that strength and that maturity that then enable us to look also at what is difficult within our lives and in the world around us. We do not have to open our eyes too wide to see that we live in a world of enormous suffering. Billions of people on this planet have their lives stringently defined by the circumstances of poverty, injustice, and oppression which exist in their lives. In every minute, 40 children die of starvation. And in that same minute, 15 million dollars are being spent on weapons of war. May we spend just the next minute silently together. begin to comprehend that, for example, in India, 360 million people live in such abject poverty that they really don't know where their next meal is coming from. In Africa, whole tribes are being decimated by famine and by AIDS. And the Middle East seems to be embroiled in a relentless cycle of violence and upheaval and war and misunderstanding. We live in a world where people are still tortured and imprisoned for their beliefs, for their values. The list of endangered species grows daily our rainforests are disappearing, sometimes forever. And at the same time, nuclear weapons are proliferating. And the problem of pollution seems insoluble. And for most of us, we live lives that are somewhat protected 
from this enormous suffering and to a degree that is important we cannot really take in the enormity of it all and so it is a protection that has its purpose and yet no matter how disguised the suffering in our lives might be if we look closely and sincerely it is there also sometimes just in the form of a vague sense of disease in our hearts and minds a feeling that things are not quite as good as they might be a feeling of discontentment that perhaps pervades our days it can be so difficult what is also true is that if we have a body we've got trouble (laughs) 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 we are subject to old age and sickness and eventual death Christ died, the Buddha died, and we must one day die too. And that truth can be very painful. The pain of fear too, that comes and goes. If we look within so often, there can be a feeling of fragmentation and alienation and loneliness. this is so overwhelming how can it be workable it seems really that the answer lies within the boundlessness of our hearts compassion is the heartfelt wish that all beings be free of suffering, including ourselves. Compassion is that hope that others be free from their pain. Compassion is the spontaneous response of a heart that is open in the face of suffering. The spontaneous response of a heart that is open in the face of suffering. So we might ask the question then, why is it that in the world that we live in there is so little compassion? It really seems so often that what we need in this world is so much more gentleness and tenderness and understanding and forgiveness. Why isn't there more compassion? Well, the truth is really that we individually and collectively are generally unwilling to open to the pain that is there. And if our hearts are not open to the pain, there can be no compassion. 
And we don't have to be a Martin Luther King or a Mahatma Gandhi or a Mother Teresa for there to be compassion. All that is needed is a willingness, an intention to open to the pain that is there and the compassion must arise. It's just the way it is. So the imperative for opening to suffering seems really great. What is it that we close to then? What is it that we avoid? Well, first of all, when we look at our bodies, we find that there are so many levels of suffering in our bodies that are difficult for us to open to. And yet it is so true that in the meditation practice, a really central part of cultivating that quality of bare attention and mindfulness is really the process of opening to what is difficult, to what is arising and passing away. But really knowing that we are closed is the beginning of opening. There are people that live their whole lives in denial of the suffering that is there. And so just knowing that we closed in some way is the beginning of an opening that can really potentially transform our whole lives. So the lessons then that we learn in working with our bodies can be the lessons that we can take then outward into the world. How is it that we work with discomfort in our bodies? Well, cultivating that quality of bare attention that I mentioned in the meditation instructions and that I do again and again is really the center of the question. Being willing to be present with the difficult sensations that arise without condemning, without judging, without aversion is the beginning really of the transformation. All, as Carol said last week, all that happens in our bodies is a manifestation of the four great elements. The element of fire, of temperature, the element of earth, which is the pressure or the softness in the body, air, which is the movement in the body. And then the element of water, which is more difficult to experience, but is that quality of cohesion. As we open to the body with bare attention and without clinging or attachment or aversion, we come to see that everything is just a manifestation of these four elements. It's really very freeing to begin to experience that. And that does happen as the practice unfolds. So asking, what is this? Exploring the edges of what we call pain. And sometimes if the mind is steady and clear, 
perhaps going right into the center and asking that same question again. What is this? A very different way of dealing with our bodies. Compassion is the spontaneous response of an open heart in the face of suffering. Beginning to develop and cultivate the quality of compassion inwardly for what is difficult. And really there are times when the heart cannot be open because it is the nature of all things to open and close. And then when the heart is not open, being open to the fact that the heart is closed is really also a part of what we're doing here. So what are the strategies then that we use for denying the pain that is there? So for example, we're sitting and we're watching the breath and then say something arises, a pain in our knee. So the first strategy is just totally denying that anything's going on down there and just staying with the breath, you know, staying with the breath. <laughs> Perhaps you know this one. It's like the thought might go through your mind, you know, it'll go. And just like staying there, hoping that if you're clinging to that breath for dear life, that whatever it is that's happening down there will evaporate. Well then, perhaps after a while, it doesn't. And so, like, out of the corner of your eye, just a quick sideways glance, you know, boom, and back to you. <laughs> you know, Hoping that that will be enough, you know. And you, you kind of do a few of those, and still, you know, it's there. So you think, okay, well, I'll go down and check it out, you know, and maybe then it'll go away, you know. So you go down there, you check it out, but your heart and mind are filled with this idea of then it'll go away. There's a lot of aversion in that also. That is not bare experience, that is not accepting. And then eventually, after the denial, after this sort of bargaining relationship, eventually then there must come a letting go and a surrendering to the pain and a willingness to just be present with what is there. It's a really beautiful, sometimes equanimity of mind that enables there to just be present with what's happening. It's like taking tea at the fire. No interference with the experience, just a witnessing of what is happening. And in that moment, in that sacred moment, there is so much possibility. And the lesson that we learn in that surrendering is the same lesson that we can then take out into the world around us. Because it is so powerful and it is so precious. What else is it that is difficult in our lives? What is it that is difficult to open to? Well, certainly the difficult emotions are another aspect of life that can be so painful. 
And it is true that part of the human experience is that there will be times that the difficult emotions arise. And there is nothing wrong when they do. Times of feeling alienated, times of feeling unworthy, times of feeling lonely, times of feeling insecure. These are part of the human tapestry and they do arise. And really the same strategies of denial that we use with pain in our bodies are usually the ones that we use when the difficult emotions arise. We deny them, we bargain with them, and then eventually there is a surrendering. Some people live their whole lives in fear of the difficult movements of mind, the difficult emotions. And for some people also, there is an armoring that can happen in the mind, behind which they hide, feeling that the world is a dangerous place, feeling that the world is judging them and they need to guard and protect themselves from that, feeling that the world is separated and behind that sheet, behind that armor, we feel isolated and we feel alone. And it becomes then, to some degree, a prison for us. Behind which others judge us. And beginning to explore this armoring, having that strength and power and maturity of mind to go up and touch that armor, is the moment that we begin to explore in a way that can be one of the most potentially freeing journeys of our life. Because so often, what, is, what it is that keeps that armoring in place is our fear of feeling, our unwillingness to feel some of the most difficult emotions that are there. And we're usually talking about fear. And when we touch that armor with compassion and with strength of mind, and it begins to shift, we can then know what it means to breathe that much more freely. Exploring the ways in which we armor ourselves. It takes a lot of guts and a lot of strength. And this question of fear, this problem of fear for some people is really central to dealing with the difficult emotions because fear is one of the most powerful conditioning aspects of our minds, one of the most powerful conditioning powers of mind. And because so many of us avoid fear and deny fear, in doing so we then are robbed of the opportunity of seeing how it works in our minds and the effects that it has. We don't understand fear so often, and yet it is one of the driving forces behind patterns of mind that can be so destructive, so abusive, so addictive, and so hurtful in our lives.
how do we experience fear? And what is it that we're scared of? Well, certainly there's fear of our bodies. There's fear of our minds and the movement of mind. And there's also fear of death. And again, the strategies that we use for denying the pain of our bodies is, are really the same strategies that so often operate in terms of our relationship with fear. We deny it or don't <coughs> recognize it. We sort of bargain with it. And then too, perhaps, there are times when we're able to surrender and just welcome the fear. There is almost a feeling of humor in a moment of surrender, or there can be. It's almost like saying, okay, you know, let me die of this fear, you know? Just opening one's heart and mind and just welcoming it and just allowing it to be there. So again, when fear arises, the questions would seem to be, what is this? How do I experience this fear? How do I experience it in the body? Is there tightness? Is there contraction? Is there heat? Cultivating bare attention to however it is that fear manifests in our bodies. And similarly in the mind, how, how is the energy now? Is it shrill? What are the images? Beginning to become the friend of our fear. Exploring the, the true nature of fear. For me, a really crucial milestone in working with fear was that moment some time ago when I committed myself to stopping in whatever moment of the day I suspected that fear was present and just acknowledged the presence of fear. And it was in the aftermath of that decision that I began to realize just how present fear was in so many parts of the day. It was wonderful because it made so much more sense of a force that I felt was driving me that I didn't understand. Willing to stop and look at fear. What an act of self-love. What an act of tenderness and compassion. Compassion is the spontaneous response of an open heart in the face of suffering. Such a merciful way of dealing with our lives and with ourselves. So on our meditation cushion, again here, the lessons that we learn from our fear are the lessons that we then begin to take out into our lives. Because that, in the end, is of course why we're sitting. 
we explore the resistances to the fear. We explore the fear of fear. We've spoken about that quite often here over the Sundays that we've met. How there can be fear and there can be fear of fear. And I've even had times when I've seen that there's been fear of the fear of fear. It's amazing what we can do. (laughs) And can we be okay with that? You know, can we welcome it? You know, without being heavy on ourselves. Because it is so true also that every time we move into the unknown, every time we deepen our understanding of the mystery of our hearts and minds of the world, every time that we're in new territory, fear must be there. And so can fear be welcomed? Because fear can be an indicator that we are moving, perhaps, into, into further beauties and understandings of who we are. A really different relationship with fear. So, as we work with fear within our hearts and minds, the lessons of that learning begin to manifest outwardly too. Because what is true is that some people live their whole lives in fear and avoidance of situations that are difficult and perhaps people that are difficult. And working with fear on our cushions can then give us the freedom of being able to go into situations that were at one time difficult, at one time were fearful for us, and to go into them, perhaps be with people that we perhaps find obnoxious or perhaps find difficult. And in, in that contact now, we can perhaps be with these people in a way that we can even touch their suffering with our hearts and with then compassion. What a wonderful freedom that is. No longer living in avoidance of difficult situations, but going in to difficult situations with our hearts open and perhaps touching the hearts and the sufferings of those that we find difficult. It certainly would seem to be a very sane and important movement in the world that we live in today. What a gift, as our exploration of fear makes our life that much more workable. And then there's the big fear. The fear of death. I spoke at length about this a couple of talks ago, so I'll be brief here. But it is really important, this question of our mortality. The Buddha, out of love and kindness and compassion for his nuns and monks and and lay followers, urged, urged, urged again and again these women and men to come to terms with their mortality. Not for reasons that were gloomy or morbid, but out of the promise that the extent to which we can come to harmony with the truth of our aging and our death is the extent to which we can know a far greater fullness in our life. It's really sad and ironic 
to consider that some people live their entire lives in fear and torment about their own death, which is sure to happen one day. So how is it that we can begin to engage this fear of death if it is such a powerful force in our lives, perhaps? Well, certainly the meditation practice that we're doing here is one way that we're engaging death. Seeing and feeling and knowing the arising and passing away of each breath, the birth and death of sounds and of smells, the beginning and the end of emotions, the beginning and the end of thoughts, is really the beginning of taking refuge in the truth of the arising and dissolution of everything on every level of our experience. One of the ways of coming to do our dance with the truth of death. What are the other ways that we can work with this fear? Well, what the Buddha used to do was he used to send his nuns and monks and others to the cemeteries and he used to say, not gloomy or morbid, but he used to say, go to the cemetery and look and see what you see. Carol spoke of this last week. The nuns and monks would go and see the bodies being burnt and see the bodies being buried. And hopefully this experience, this this immediate contact with the truth of death would be one of the ways that we could begin to dismantle the delusion that we're immortal. When I was a monk, we did this practice, I've mentioned it before, of focusing on different parts of the body, systematically focusing on the fluids of the body and the bones and the blood and the flesh, for days and weeks and months on end actually. And after a while, the solidity of it all begins to kind of dismantle. And one really begins to experience this body as this dynamic energy movement, moment to moment changing. It's very, very free. And one evening, the nuns and monks went to the Department of Anatomy at a nearby university. And that was the first moment that I saw a dead body. And it was really a sacred ritual in my life. Because seeing these people exactly like me, except they weren't breathing, and being in the space that I was in, that I knew that when I left there, I could never relate to myself in quite the way that I had up until that point. We lose so much from hiding ourselves from the truth of our mortality. So then the question becomes, who is it that dies? If everything is changing, who or what is it that is doing the dying? Well, really, the only death that then does happen is the death of the idea of a permanent gavin, the death of a, of a permanent 
fixed being that is going to be there and is going to endure a permanent separate Gavin is really ultimately the only death that needs to happen and in beginning to relate to oneself as nothing, as having nothing that is solid is the beginning of a great freedom in our lives and perhaps you can sense that the ground swell of letting go and of movement when the holding on is no longer there to immortality is an enormous act of compassion for ourselves and that's really when the dance begins so much less fear. This is from one of the scriptures, it's called uh, The Path of Purification. It says, mere suffering exists, no sufferer is found. The deeds are, but no doer of the deeds is there. Nirvana is, but not the man or woman that enters it. The path is, but no traveler on it is seen. And so it seems that for there to be compassion, there needs to be an opening to both the 10,000 sorrows and the 10,000 joys of life to both the beauty and the difficulties of life and in meditation we settle back and without avoidance and without aversion what we're doing here is cultivating a compassionate attention to whatever it is that arises in our lives. Compassionate attention. Ryokan, who's this wonderful old Zen monk, he said, Oh, that my priest's robe were wide enough to gather up all the suffering people in this floating world. Oh, that my priest's robes were wide enough to gather up all the suffering people in this floating world. And then of course the question becomes how do we manifest this compassion, this great power and strength of heart in the world? We don't have to be a Martin Luther King or a Mahatma Gandhi or a Mother Teresa because that really is guilt and that's just another prison. How is it that we manifest our compassion in the world? And really it seems that our only responsibility is to our own hearts. That they really here too are no shoulds. In the willingness open to suffering in the world. In, in the strength of our willingness to open to the suffering in the world, there so often is an inclination to try and do that much that's going to change it all. And that can also so often be a movement of the heart 
that can really burn us out and wipe us out and also so often arises with a feeling of judgment of how little we're doing and how much more we need to do. And that becomes its own violence sometimes also. So really, as mothers and healers, as peace activists, as business people, whatever, it seems that what is important is that our life be our message. And really nothing more that our life is, is our message. In closing, I'd like to share with you a really special and beautiful moment in my own life. It happened quite recently. A number of weekends ago, I, I spent uh, the weekend at a Catholic seminary uh, just north of New York City. It was um, a gathering for people who, like me, were all HIV positive. And with me that weekend were gathered people from a slice of life that I'd never ever had contact with before. There were ex-drug addicts, there were recovering alcoholics, there were ex-criminals, there were drug pushers, there were prostitutes, there were street people of all, all kinds. There were some Hells Angels people there too. And really what we shared was our, our uh, suffering relating to, to, to being positive and also our willingness to open to the difficulties and heartaches of one another. And on the Saturday night, we gathered in this tiny little chapel. It was St. Francis Chapel, high up on this mountain. It was a very windy night. And um, there were about 80 or 90 of us. Some of us were ill and some of us were healthy. And uh, this, the Franciscan monks who were there in their, in their brown, brown robes, friars, they turned off all the lights in this chapel and had candles below the statues. And that was all that was there. And for several hours in the silence, people prayed out aloud. And people wept. And people shared their joy. A few people sang. It was an extraordinary moment for me. It was certainly one of the most heartbreaking and moving experiences of my life. And I felt such love for these people, such interconnection. And in some ways I felt so far away from what was familiar. And my heart really gave forth this spontaneous prayer of gratitude that my suffering and our suffering had really brought us together in a way that would never otherwise have been possible. We were all really profoundly blessed and enriched by one another's willingness 
to be open to the pain that we experienced and to the pain of one another. And the experiencing of the collective faith and hope and praise of one another was something that I'll never forget. There are so many riches in opening to our own and to the pain of the world. This is T.S. Eliot. He says, in order to arrive there, to arrive where you are, to get from where you are not, you must go by a way wherein there is no ecstasy. In order to arrive at what you do not know, you must go by a way which is the way of ignorance. In order to possess what you do not possess, you must go by a way of dispossession. In order to arrive at what you are not, you must go through the way in which you are not. And what you do not know is the only thing that you do know. And what you own is what you do not own. And where you are is where you are not. We shall not cease from exploration and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. And all manner of things shall be well. When the tongues of flames are enfolded Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.